0: Our first reading this evening is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the Holy Place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. <coughs> this Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the Glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself, and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Our second reading this evening is Hebrews 9, verses 15 to 28. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people he said this is the blood of the covenant which god has commanded you to keep in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies in fact the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him.
1: On some questions, cowardice On some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? And vanity comes along and asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge... Moments of great crisis and controversy. The words are those of Martin Luther King, and he puts conscience at the centre of our decision-making process, at the centre of questions of our integrity. Conscience has been described as the still, small voice of God speaking in our hearts. But it's a term that does double duty. Conscience governs our sense of right and wrong. But it also monitors and records all those occasions when we say or do something against it. Hence the phrase guilty conscience, which describes how we feel when we know that we've done something that is against the dictates of our conscience. It's the Merriam-Webster online dictionary which gives one of the most helpful and comprehensive definitions of conscience. It is the sense or consciousness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct intentions or character, together with a feeling of obligation to do right or be good. So I may have a good conscience or a bad conscience, a clear conscience or a guilty conscience, depending on the extent to which I live in accordance with with what I believe to be right or wrong. But the thing about conscience is it's not a 100% reliable moral guide, because we have the capacity to shape and mould it. See, nobody likes living with a guilty conscience, it's a most uncomfortable feeling. And if we are too proud to admit that we've done wrong and seek forgiveness and deal with our feelings of guilt that way, what other options are open to us? Well, a common solution is to justify our behaviour. To say to ourselves that what we did wasn't all that bad in the circumstances really, and if there is any blame to be attached, it should at least be shared, if not passed on entirely to somebody else. And the problem is every time we do that, whether consciously or unconsciously, we distort and damage the reliability of conscience as our guide. It's like a compass that no longer points to true north. Instead, we have bent and shaped our sense of right and wrong so that we are more comfortable with how we live and and the things that we've done. And when that happens, conscience no longer functions as the still, small voice of God within us that voice is silenced and replaced with the echo of what we think and feel ought to be right for us in the circumstances. Sometimes we can have the opposite problem. Some people have an oversensitized conscience. If we've had perhaps particularly demanding parents who've placed unreasonable expectations upon us, we end up feeling all the time as if we're guilty failures. Because our conscience is so sensitive that nothing but an unattainable perfection will ever allow us to feel comfortable with who we are or how we're doing. Or sometimes it's shame rather than guilt that pricks our conscience. So we feel bad not because we've necessarily done anything wrong ourselves, but we're afraid of what other people might think about us. So if, as some have suggested, having a conscience is part of what makes us uniquely human and sets us apart from the animal kingdom, we need to recognise that our conscience is a fallen and fragile and damaged instrument. And it may not always be reliable. But nevertheless, whenever our conscience does trouble us, that means that something somewhere isn't as it should be. So we would do well to pay attention to what Hebrews claims in chapter 9, verse 14, namely that the blood of Christ cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The blood of Christ is able to make a guilty conscience clear, a bad conscience good. The reference to cleansing implies that we we don't have a clean conscience because sin pollutes and defiles. It makes us feel unworthy and unclean. If you've seen Macbeth, you'll know that scene where Lady Macbeth is futilely trying to scrub away the stain of Duncan's blood from her hand after she was complicit in getting her husband to murder him. Not all the perfumes of Arabia would cleanse that little hand. But the blood of Christ would Have done had she chosen to avail herself of it. So the reference to cleansing reflects the way in which our conscience tends to carry the record in indelible ink of all the wrong things that we have done. And the longer the list of misdeeds on the record of our conscience, the less effective it is in acting as a reliable moral guide for how we should live. In these days of computers, one could say that the conscience has limited memory capacity. And if the processor has to work overtime just to store the records of our misdeeds, there simply aren't sufficient resources to point us in the right direction when it comes to making more decisions. The system is overloaded just keeping track of what we've done. So it's easy to see then how we can slip from bad to worse. Because the worse we get, the more there is on our conscience. The less resources conscience is able to allocate to the task of telling us how we ought to live. Just taking up all the time dealing with past failures, no resources to give to how we ought to live in the future. But suppose that record of all that wrongdoing were expunged, removed, deleted that frees our conscience up again so that it can begin once more to tell us how we should live. It's no longer distorted out of true by the weight of guilt it has to carry. So from that point of view, Hebrews is absolutely right to say if our consciences are cleansed by the blood of Christ, the result of that is that we are set free to serve the living God. A clean conscience is can result in changed behaviour so that we stop doing acts that lead to death and instead focus on God and how we can serve him. Grace both forgives us and changes the orientation of our lives, but forgiveness comes first. When we are forgiven, that sets us free to begin to live life a different way. If you turn it round, you end up living life a different way as a way of trying to earn forgiveness. And there's no grace in that at all. Grace operates by forgiving, releasing and changing and making us different. Sin is like a nasty cut that's full of dirt. The first thing to do is to cleanse the wound. Then it can begin to heal properly. The first thing God does is cleanse our conscience so that once again it can be up and running and showing us effectively how we ought to live. Forgiveness is liberating. And what does God use to cleanse our conscience? It's the blood of Christ. It's God's detergent. Nothing beats the blood of Christ for getting out those really stubborn stains of sin. One of my bad memories is once we were staying at my sister's house and one of our children took a permanent marker pen and drew on the settee cover. Now, you could say that blame could be shared because she left the permanent marker pens out. But nevertheless, whatever we did only made matters worse. Our attempts at removing the stain were failures. Whatever cleansing agent we got, I can't remember what it was, didn't really get the marks out. And when you followed the instructions and and used the cleansing agent, put it in the machine and washed it, the result was that the whole thing came out smaller and darker. I still feel pretty wretched when I remember it. When it comes to getting stains out, you need to use the right stuff. And when it comes to the ingrained dirt of sin, nothing but the blood of Christ will do. Now that seems really counterintuitive to us because surely blood stains are the hardest things to get out. Those of you who've had to get blood stains out of clothing will think you really don't use blood to cleanse stuff. I'm always faintly bemused by that verse in Revelation that talks about the saints washing their robes and making them white in the blood of the Lamb. No, that's not what happens at all. Yet the Old Testament is pretty clear that one of the problems with sin is that it pollutes and renders unclean and effective atonement involves the idea of wiping clean and when it comes to dealing with the uncleanness of sin, blood is what works. So on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the cover of the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of a goat, and in this way he would make atonement for the most holy place and stop it being defiled by the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. If you read all the stuff about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, you'll see it's all about cleansing rather than forgiveness, actually. And the blood serves to cleanse the, the most holy place, and the ark of the covenant and the altar from the impurity and the defilement of the israelites so that the holiness of god can live safely in the midst of a sinful people the blood of the goat would cleanse the innermost sanctuary from the miasma of the nation's sin so that the holy god could live in the midst of a sinful nation why blood why did it have to be blood that did this Well, the Israelites were expressly forbidden from eating blood because God had said that the life of the animal is in the blood. And the idea was that as God is the giver of life and all life belongs to him, then the blood that is the life belongs to him as well. And that's why they were instructed, you don't eat the blood because the blood belongs to God. You either let it drain away into the ground, or if it's been killed as a sin offering, the blood can be poured out at the base of the altar and that would atone for sin. The life of an animal is in the blood. When the animal loses its blood, it loses its life. But the the, the life and the blood belong to God. And God would accept the blood of an animal to atone for sin. The life of an animal for the life of someone who had sinned. The death of the sacrifice served to redeem the one who offered it from their sin. But because blood is the designated means of atoning for sin, and sin also brings defilement that needs cleansing, Blood doesn't just kind of deal with sin in terms of that's a life for life. Also, there is the associated imagery of blood cleansing and dealing with sin comprehensively. It's one agent with different metaphors for how it works. A life for life redeems the sinner from the effect of their sin. The blood that is the life is used to cleanse the sin and wipe it away and make it clean again in the sight of God. It's one agent with two images associated with it. But Hebrews observes... That although sacrificial blood in the Old Testament could cleanse from ceremonial uncleanness on the outside, it did nothing to affect the kind of person you were on the inside. The earthly tabernacle where all these sacrifices took place was only a shadow of the greater and more perfect tabernacle in heaven where Christ would deal with sin once and for all by his sacrificial death. And under the new covenant, God no longer dwells in an ark made of gold in the Holy of Holies. God makes us his temple, our hearts his dwelling place. And Christ's death cleanses and purifies our hearts and consciences and makes us in our innermost being clean for us to be the dwelling place of God. So it is that Hebrews make the bold claim that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. People debate the meaning of that phrase. Does it mean that the death of Christ is so integral to God's forgiveness that he couldn't possibly accept us without the mechanics of Christ's blood having been shed to atone for our sin? There were those who'd say that's the case. Actually, the, the death of Christ is so foundational that without it there could never be any forgiveness for us. It is absolutely fundamental to everything else others would say well hebrews is interpreting the death of christ in strictly sacrificial terms and saying that just as the shedding of blood was more or less essential to atonement in the old testament so the shedding of christ's blood is essential to the removal of the stain and the pollution of sin from our lives in that sense the blood is necessary and we struggle with this a bit perhaps today because part of our problem is that the We don't think in terms of sacrifice anymore. When you eat meat, those of you who aren't vegetarians, you get it ready prepared from the butcher or the supermarket, and you have no conception of the animal that you're eating, you having taken its life so that you can eat it. No conception of the lifebloods actually being the animal's life. Or any idea that the meat you've offered is is in any way a sacrifice or an offering to God. And because we no longer see the animal dying as its blood drains away, we don't readily understand that the life is in the blood. And because God gives life, then there is something, something sacred about blood. So it's natural to then to see blood as something God can use to atone for our sins by redeeming us from our sin and cleansing his sanctuary from our impurity. All that is arcane to us now because we are so far removed from the death of the animal and seeing the, the implications of all that the blood means. Yet that doesn't alter the fundamental truth that through the death of his Son, God has released the power of his forgiveness into our lives. Jesus is the one who can cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death and change the whole direction of our lives away from acts that lead to death so that instead we end up serving the living God. And when our consciences are deeply stained by things in the past for which we find it hard to believe that we could ever be forgiven, the blood of Christ says, yes, you can. And yes, you have been forgiven. It is the objective demonstration and evidence of God's forgiveness for you, whatever you have done. It is covered and dealt with, and cleansed, and removed, and atoned for, and forgiven by the blood of Christ. That is God's means of forgiveness, and God's guarantee of forgiveness. And you can't do anything to add to that. And you don't need to. Everything necessary for your forgiveness, and cleansing, and renewing, has been done by Christ in the shedding of his blood. There is no stain of sin so deep that the blood of Christ cannot make it clean. And when God cleanses our consciences and invites us to inspect them, we find that the blood of Christ can make them spotless. And that can be the key to forgiving ourselves, which sometimes we really find difficult to do. But because of the blood of Jesus, we have the assurance that God does not condemn us. And if he does not condemn us, then there is no higher authority than that to which you can appeal. If God does not condemn you, you should not condemn yourself either. Rather, let him cleanse your conscience. Let him wipe the record clean. Let him release you from both guilt and shame. And enable you to face the future with fresh confidence. Grounded in the assurance that Christ died for you. And his forgiveness is complete. That is the evidence and the result of the blood of Christ that was shed for us all.